So from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, uh, as we get started, I've got a question I wonder if you have an answer for. Uh, my question is pretty simple. My question is, what are you doing here? Uh, it's a nice night out there, you're all young. Uh, surely you've got things to do uh, and energy to burn. Why are you here? Like, what are you hoping is going to happen this evening that is going to make it worthwhile for you to be here? Now, you might say, well, I'm waiting to hear what happens at the end of 1 Thessalonians. I'm waiting to hear God's Word read uh, and explained. That's a good answer. But is that it? Is that the sum total of why you're here? You might say, well, no, uh, I'm also here to sing praises to God. Uh, great. So you want to hear God's Word? read in the Bible and explain and you want to sing praises to God for his goodness, that's great. Is that it? Is that why you came? You might say, no, I not only want to hear the Bible read and explain, and I not only want to sing praises to God, but I'm looking forward to praying together. Is that it? It's a good list, but is that the sum total of why you came tonight? Sensing that I think there's more answers, you might now say, no, I'm also here Give the announcements. <laughs> now you're getting really desperate. But seriously, tonight, if somebody asked you, uh, why are you part of a church? Well, what do you Christians do in your community that makes it worth going to and being a part of? What would you say? What would you answer? What are you doing here? What have you come for? What is supposed to be happening in this community here at St. Matthew's? Now, first glance, the reading that we had from First Thessalonians, it does seem like a, a random stir-fry of 18 closing commands as we close First uh, Thessalonians. But it is surprisingly structured if you have a close look. There's, I think there's three sets of commands, and each set of commands, it helps us see something of what we're supposed to be doing here in this community. Each group of commands gives us some part of the answer to the question of what are we doing here? So let's find out. Let's head into this closing chapter. The first set of commands in verse 12 to 15 are all the things that should be happening 
horizontally between people in any Christian community. Uh, notice firstly what the church leaders are supposed to be doing here. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 12. Now I ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. So from verse 12, we see there's a couple of things at least that church leaders should be doing uh, within this community. Firstly, they should be working hard amongst the people of the church. That word, work hard, uh, is a word that gets used to describe tiresome labour, toiling and striving and struggling. Uh, well, tiresome labour doing what? Uh, well, the rest of the verse tells you what leaders in the church are supposed to be working hard, sweating away doing. Look at verse 12 again. Uh, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard amongst you. And here's what they're going to work hard at. Who care for you in the Lord, number one, and who admonish you, number two. So firstly, uh, leaders are supposed to be caring for you in the Lord. That is, looking after your spiritual health, praying for you, encouraging you when you struggle, working hard on sermons and Bible studies, visiting the sick, counselling the worried and concerned. If you're part of a local church, that sounds good, doesn't it? Having someone working hard, tiring themselves, toiling to care for you in the Lord. It sounds wonderful, right? But what about the second bit of verse 12? What about the other thing that leaders are supposed to be working hard at doing? Because verse 12 also says they're supposed to be working hard at admonishing. Admonishing means correcting, rebuking, confronting you about sin, pointing out areas of your life that don't actually line up and match your Christian profession. Church leaders are supposed to be working hard doing that amongst you. Uh, admonishing is never enjoyable. But God says leaders are supposed to work hard at it. Why, do you think? Uh, well, have you seen what happens in a family when the parents don't discipline their children, when kids talk rudely or they tease each other and they snatch toys and the parents just kind of smile, you know, ha ha, little Johnny, isn't he lovely, and never discipline the children. I think we know how those children grow up if parents don't work hard at disciplining. So what do you think happens in a church family if the leaders don't work hard at admonishing God's children? That is why God commands church leaders to admonish children. It's supposed to happen. It's part of church. Leaders are to work hard caring for God's people and admonishing, rebuking, correcting, having hard conversations with you about areas of sin or lack of Christian maturity. Christian leaders are supposed to work hard, toiling, doing that. If that's been part of your experience at church, how did you respond? How are church members supposed to be responding to that kind of work? Well, uh, let's have a look. Look again at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard amongst you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. The church members are supposed to hold their leaders in high regard as their leaders work hard caring and admonishing. To commit yourself to be part of a local church is to actually commit yourself to the care and the discipline of its leaders that God has commissioned to care for his children. Is that how you think about the church? Is that how you think about any church? 
Uh, let me give you an illustration of when I was rebuked by church leadership. Uh, I was 21, so, you know, probably around your age, perhaps. Uh, I'd been a Christian for not very long, and I thought it would be a great idea to join a hub group. So I was in this youth Bible study, and let me tell you, I was not a good group member. I did not take studying the Bible particularly seriously. I spent my time mucking around and making jokes. I was definitely a class clown. I know that you find that very hard to believe in how mature uh, I am now. <laughs> I was that disruptive guy in the Bible study that no leader would want in their group. Anyway, one night after one of the studies, one of the leaders pulls me aside and he does exactly what God says he should do in this passage. Admonishes me. He rebukes me. He shows me how my behaviour is really, really unhelpful and disruptive and how it stops people from studying the Bible uh, properly, which was really serious. That's uh, just a short version. The conversation went for a good 10 to 15 minutes. Now, that was not an easy conversation for me. Uh, it's never fun to be confronted by your lack of Christian maturity or your sin. Uh, not an easy conversation for me. But the older I've got, I started to realise it also wasn't an easy conversation for him. He was working hard. He was toiling uh, at admonishing me. And I'm so glad he did. Uh, I changed my behaviour after I kind of saw what he was saying. Uh, and much to my benefit. And also much to the benefit of the Bible study group that I was a part of. Leaders are supposed to care and admonish. And the church is supposed to Acknowledge them in that role. Do you want to know how to slowly kill a church and make it ineffective? I hope your answer is no, I don't want to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> it's actually really easy. You're simply putting leaders who are lazy at caring and admonishing. Or you have a church that just doesn't respect their leaders when they do it. There will be no peace in that kind of church, which is why verse 13, the last part of verse 13 says, live in peace with one another. The fruit of a leadership that works hard at caring and admonishing, and a church that respects its leadership when it does that, the fruit of that is peace within the body. Leaders in churches are to work hard caring and admonishing. Church members are to acknowledge them in love in that role. That is the picture of verse 12 to 13, but I wonder if at this point you noticed in the reading that it's not just the leaders in the church that are to do that. Look at the next couple of verses. Look at what happens. Pick it up from verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters. Now that is everybody in the church, right? Brothers and sisters is how Paul keeps addressing the entire church through the letter. We urge you, brothers and sisters, I think the whole church, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Whole church. Warn, encourage, help. Although the leaders, they have primary responsibility in these things, you can see the whole church shares that role. Paul addresses the entire church community and says, firstly, warn the idol. Paul commands the whole church, not just the leaders, warn those who are idle and disruptive. And secondly, he tells the whole church, the brothers and sisters, not just the leaders, to encourage those who are struggling and disheartened, to build up those who are really down. And thirdly, Paul says to the whole church, not just the leaders, help the weak. Hold on to them, cling to them, 
help them get through in the Christian walk. And then he says to the church, not just the leaders, be patient with everyone. Because the idle, the disruptive, the disheartened, the weak, you might consider them the problem children of the local church, always plagued with issues and problems of faith and always having issues with conduct. But the whole church, not just the leaders, are commanded to be patient with them as they warn, as they encourage, and as they help the weak. That, on screen, that is an amazing picture, I think, of what is supposed to be happening horizontally between the people of any church community. Leaders working hard, toiling, caring and admonishing, and brothers and sisters warning the wayward, encouraging the weary, and helping the weak. That's starting practice. That is an amazing picture of what is supposed to be happening horizontally amongst the people of the church. It doesn't take long, looking at that, to work out that that picture goes so far beyond just turning up for 1.5 hours on a Sunday to do your thing here at any church. But here's a question. See that picture on screen with all those things to be happening between us as people? Is that how you think about what you're doing here? How seriously do you take your role that God has called you to in the care and the warning and the helping of your brothers and sisters here at Uni Church. Wouldn't it be terrible? Wouldn't it be terrible if someone here today was really disheartened and they gave up on Jesus today because nobody encouraged them? Wouldn't it be terrible for someone here who is slowly walking into sin to just keep walking and walk all the way away from Jesus because nobody admonished them? Wouldn't that be terrible? And wouldn't it be misguided to think that it was only up to the handful of paid staff at St. Matthew's to speak and to act into that situation? Now this on screen, it's an amazing picture, I think, of what is supposed to be happening horizontally between the people at our church. Is that how you view church? Is that how you view your role in it? Now that is the picture of verse 12 to 15. It shows us what is happening horizontally between us. Verse 16 to 18 shows us an equally wonderful picture of what is supposed to be happening vertically, upwards, between us and God, from us towards God. Look at verse 16. Let's pick it up for a minute. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So firstly, rejoice always. Always. Uh, that is not some sugar-coated motivational call for just sort of putting on a happy face when life is rubbish. Uh, remember what's happening to these guys. This church, they are undergoing persecution because of their faith. That's chapter 2. Friends have died, possibly martyred, and they're missing them. Chapter 4. That's why a moment ago, Paul says to them, encourage the disheartened. Because disheartened, broken, down Christians is what Paul expects in a difficult life as they suffer and are persecuted. And so this call that he now makes to rejoice always, it cannot mean pretend everything is wonderful. Because he knows it's not. Rather, I think rejoice always, it means even in the presence of suffering, even in the presence of trouble, joy is still to be found 
in the good things that God has given us in the Lord Jesus, which your suffering can never take away from you. Your family member's cancer cannot take away yours or their perfect righteousness given to you in the Lord Jesus. Your failed university degree or unit cannot jeopardise God's love for you. Your painful relationship breakdowns with family or friends cannot change the fact that Jesus died for your sin, rose to life again, and has given you a hope of heaven. So this call to rejoice always, it doesn't mean pretend everything is wonderful and keep your Instagram account full of happy, glossy photos that just kind of presents to the world this wonderful life that you're living. No, rejoice always. It means even when life is terrible and we rightly grieve those things, it's God's will we still find solace and joy in the things he has given us in Christ Jesus that our suffering can never take away. Which is why he says in verse 18, to give thanks to God in all circumstances. He doesn't mean give thanks to God for all circumstances. You're not supposed to thank God for a failed university degree or for suffering, just like the Thessalonians. They're not supposed to thank God or their persecution or the death of their friends. Not thank God for all circumstances, but thank God in all circumstances. I think it's meaning that in all circumstances, there are still things to thank God for. Because all those circumstances, as bad as they may be, cannot take away the good things that God has given you in Jesus. Like forgiveness of sin. Like peace with God. Like hope of heaven. I want to give you an illustration of what that looks like. Um, in Uni Church International, our oldest member is well into her 90s. We actually haven't seen her at Uni Church International now for about a year and a half because her health has been so poor, she's not been able to make one Sunday in the last year and a half. She's had multiple operations, she's having trouble walking after a hip replacement. Life is painful, life is hard, life is disheartening. I was supposed to have morning tea with her last month, but she had to cancel on the day because she had a fall and gashed her leg and had to go to hospital. Her eyesight is now failing. She needs a second eye operation just so that she can read the Bible. She is wearied. She's tired. She's in pain. And she's struggling. And she tells me that every time we speak on the phone. But there's a second thing she also tells me, without fail, every time we speak on the phone. She says, Mike, despite all this, I'm just so thankful that God has given me Jesus. Despite all that stuff, I'm just so thankful for Jesus. She's so wonderful. Uh, Can you see that her struggle and her pains now cannot seem to rob her of the joy and thankfulness she has in Jesus? So she rejoices always. She gives thanks in all circumstances. She also keeps praying. Every week she prays for the university ministry that we run in the mornings at UCI. Every week, without fail, she keeps praying, which is exactly what Paul says to do. I look at verse 17. It says, pray continually. Pray continually. Not meaning wake up in the morning, start praying, ignore people at the breakfast table because you're on a higher calling because you're praying, and the Bible says pray continually. No, I think it means pray continually the same kind of way that you might check your phone continually. Multiple times a day. Every time you've got a spare moment. 
when you wait for that person at the cafe because they're late, when you're sitting at the bus stop, uh, pray continually like you might check your phone continually. So there are the things in the upwards arrows that's supposed to characterise uh, what is going on in the Thessalonian church. Rejoice always to God. Uh, pray always and give thanks in all circumstances. Is that us? Is that us? Or do troubles and strife just rob us instantly of our joy and our thankfulness and our hope? The last thing this passage has for us are the things that are supposed to be happening vertically downwards. That is, from God to us. Verse 19 to 24. And the first thing that is supposed to be happening here is God speaking. That's what verse 19 and 22 is about. It's a little bit complex. We'll have a little bit of time to unpack it. Look at verse 19. We'll start there. Do not quench the spirit. Uh, quench is a word that just means to put out a fire. Uh, it's what I had to do uh, a couple months ago when my barbecue uh, erupted in an inferno after three years of collecting grease in the tray finally uh, ignited. Now, quench means to put it out, to tip water on it. You don't put water on a grease fire, but... You know, quench just means to, to put water on it and to, you know, stop the fire from doing what it wants to do. Now, quenching the Spirit, I think it's a metaphor for stopping or resisting the work of the Spirit, what He wants to do. Now, in what ways have the Thessalonians been doing that? Uh, what have they been doing to quench or resist the work of the Spirit? What was the Spirit wanting to do amongst them that they've kind of been pushing back on? Well, I think that's what verse 20 is showing us. Verse 20, after saying don't quench the Spirit, Paul says, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So it, it seems they might have been resisting the work of the Spirit uh, by ignoring or holding in contempt uh, any kind of prophecy. They've been quenching, they've been resisting, they've been putting out the Spirit's work by speaking God's word. Now that does raise a whole bunch of questions of what exactly is prophecy and does that work today and what does it look like today? That's a complex set of questions with differing views. There's no way in two minutes tonight we're going to get across that. It'll be a job for another day. But let me just say a couple of simple things, really important things for us to hold on to. Uh, prophecy at its simplest is God speaking to his people through his people. So you know in the Old Testament that happened through prophets like Ezekiel, Prophets like Isaiah, God taught and rebuked his people through the Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament, it clearly was happening in churches like uh, that in Thessalonica. Uh, but the question pretty quickly turns to, well, what about us? Well, we're starting to think about that question, and we're not going to get very far tonight on it. Uh, we're starting to think about it. I think one of the things you need to hold on to is that we have a way of listening to God's that people in the Old Testament and in Thessalonica never had. And that is we have the completed Bible. We have God's Word captured for us in Scripture, and that is the primary, notice the nuance in that word, uh, that's the primary way that God speaks. It's not the only way, but the primary. If you, if you want to hear God speak, God's Word in the Bible is the most easily readable, it's the most easily reliable, you can access it any it is the primary way of hearing God speak. Have you noticed the way the Scripture talks about itself? It 
refers to itself as God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That was the job of the Old Testament prophets, to teach, correct, rebuke, and to call God's people to lives of righteousness. The primary way that God speaks to us today is when we read the Bible, and as it's read, God's Spirit works to help us understand it and to apply it. God speaks through his word in the Bible. That's why, uh, you know, in St. Matthew's and other churches, after the Bible reading, we say, this is the word of the Lord. Because it is the word of the Lord. That's why often here we might sing the song, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you, and then read the Bible. Because God speaks to us through his word in the Bible, and his spirit helps us to understand it. Do you ever find yourself that work of the Spirit, resisting or ignoring what God is saying to you in the Scriptures. That's quenching the work of the Spirit. The primary way that God speaks to us is through the reading of His Word. Don't quench that. But what about prophecy today? Uh, even if it is the kind of secondary way that God speaks, what, what might it look like? Today. Given that we don't have Old Testament prophets, we don't have Isaiah and Ezekiel walking around and saying things and just adding it to uh, the Bible. Uh, well, uh, let me put a case before you. Have you ever had that experience on Sunday where the Bible is read and it's being explained and you think, how did the preacher know I struggle with that? How did he know I am tempted by that? Only to then just ignore it and to go home and to not think about it anymore. That is quenching the work of the Spirit as someone explains Scripture to you. Don't ignore that. Test it. Hold it up against Scripture and see if it's right. That's what the passage says. Or have you ever been in a Bible study? And there's just one of those people that week by week, they always point something out in the passage in a really convicting way that just pierces your stony heart and really gets down to something. I need to then just go home at the end of the night kind of forget about it, to ignore it, to refuse to obey it. That, I think, is quenching the work of the Spirit. That is stopping the Spirit's work in bringing God's Word in the Bible to bear on our lives. God speaks through His Scriptures to us, and His Spirit works to help us understand it, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us and call us to live lives of righteousness. That happens in sermons. Happens as you sit down for a one-to-one in a cafe, that happens in your own private reading. The Spirit is alive and active, taking God's word and speaking it into your life. Is that your experience of church community? That God speaks. Because God speaking is the first thing in the downwards arrow. And the second thing in the downwards arrow is that God sanctifies. Look at verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Sanctify just means to make holy, to make separate, to make different and distinct. Did you notice verse 23 describes it in the language of being kept blameless until the coming of Jesus. It includes the ideas of turning away from our sin, becoming more godly, becoming more mature and Christ-like. God 
leaving our lives of sin and progressively growing more and more in our Christ-likeness? Is that your experience of being part of a Christian community? Can you think of ways that God has been progressively sanctifying you? If, if I asked you, what was the biggest sin that you finally defeated in 2018, what would you say? Or if I asked you, in what ways are you more like Jesus now than you were 12 months ago, what would you say? Because God sanctifying his people is one of the things that is supposed to be happening in his community of children. Why I love verse 24? Verse 24 is such a comfort to me. Look at what it says. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. God will. God will sanctify you through and through. God will completely make you holy on that last day that you and I stand before him. But he starts that work in us now. Is that your experience? Is church a community of people where God is progressively and slowly but surely sanctifying you. Well, there you go. You can uh, look at that diagram on the screen. That is Paul's thumbnail sketch in the scriptures of what is supposed to be happening in the church community. Now, I reckon that that is an exciting vision. Horizontally, the church uh, actively caring and encouraging, warning and helping each other. In the upwards direction, a community that is continually praying and rejoicing and giving thanks. In the downwards direction, God is to be speaking into their lives and progressively sanctifying us. So here's my question for us tonight. Does that diagram, does that diagram represent how you think of church and Christian community? Does that represent your experience here at St. Matthews? If not, which bits of the diagram are missing for you? Does your experience of church look like this, mainly horizontal? That is, is being part of a church mainly about relationships and community and friends? That would be pretty easy for you to tell if that was you, because you'd make time for meals and coffee and social outings with friends from church, but you'd be too busy to regularly make a hub group with them, or Sunday. And when you do hang out with Christian friends, you'll find that your time doesn't actually really include those things in the horizontal arrow. It doesn't include encouraging each other in a Christian walk. It might include warning each other about obvious and public sin. It would just include social stuff, coffee and Instagram posts and those kind of things, none of which is wrong, but that can't be our sum total of what it means to be engaged in Christian community. Is your expectation, is your experience of church mainly horizontal? Or is it mainly the downward arrow for you? Is being part of church mainly just coming on Sunday to hear God's word read and explained, or going to a hub group to get your nose into the Bible? Are you actually missing that horizontal arrow? Where church is about you encouraging and being encouraged, helping and caring and admonishing your brothers and sisters in Christ as the day of the Lord approaches. Well, that would be easy to tell too, wouldn't it? Because you'd be able to list all the books that you studied in Hungary. You'd be able to make a list of all the great things that you learned over the last 12 months. But you'd struggle to make a list of people that you prayed for, people that you encouraged, weak and disheartened people that you strengthened as they struggled. 
or is church mainly the upward arrow for you? Is your experience of church all about the event of Sunday, the public singing, the praising, the praying? Well, that would be easy to tell for you to tell as well, wouldn't it? In fact, the thing which really struck me as I was getting ready to teach on this passage is that as I look at this diagram and I think about my own expectations and my own experience of church, the thing that really strikes me is it's really easy for me to tell which parts of that diagram are missing for me or are too small. And if that's easy for me to spot in my own life, my assumption is it's easy for you to spot and to think about in your life. So as you look at this picture on screen with me, it's worth asking what might be missing or what might be too small for you. Because if something is missing, it will be affecting your Christian life at some level. So if there is something missing for you, it's really worth asking, what am I going to do about that? What am I going to change this week, this month, this year, to fix that? Well, if you're struggling at the moment to, to keep attention because the night is going on, uh, here's the bit that I really want you to hear. Uh, I want you to hear this next thing really, really clearly. It would be very easy, I think, to look at this passage and to look at this diagram and to feel guilt. I feel some level of guilt or shame about the stuff in my experience of church that is missing. So I want you to hear this clearly. That is not why this passage is here. That is not why God has put this in the Scriptures. This picture of church is not to guilt us into action. It's to excite us into action. See, these verses, I think they paint the most wonderful, vibrant, deep and purposeful picture of church and all of the stuff that is supposed to be happening amongst God's people, that is exciting. As we horizontally careful and admonish and warn each other, as we help the weak, as upwardly we continue to pray and to rejoice and to give thanks in all circumstances, and as downwardly God speaks and sanctifies His people, that is an exciting vision of what is supposed to be happening in any church community. See, it's not supposed to leave us feeling guilty it's supposed to leave us feeling excited and energised and ready to be part of church at Uni Church in 2019. Uh, my prayer for this congregation and my congregation in the morning and all of our congregations at St. Matthew is that that would be our experience, that that would be our expectation of church for 2015, 19, sorry, together. <laughs> I've just given you four years to work on this. <laughs> it's very exciting. I hope this is a thing that just really galvanises and electrifies you and just gets you really excited for 2019. I think it would be great for us as a community to pray to God now and to help and to ask for His help to do exactly that in 2019. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the exciting vision that you give us for what you want to be happening in this community, between each other and between us and you. And Father, we pray more and more that this would be our experience and our expectation of what it means to be part of your people here at St. Matt's. Horizontally, please form us into a people that care and that help, that encourage and that warn each other, people that work hard at building each other up. Upwardly, Father, make us the kind of people who find such joy in the things that you've given us in Jesus that we are constantly praying to you, 
giving thanks to you in all situations, even though we live in a world that is so often broken by sin. Please make our joy and our thankfulness and our prayer lives robust and unshakable. Downwardly, Father, please be at work in us to make us people who are attentive to hearing you speak to us in the Scriptures. Make us a people who are progressively being sanctified by you as you help us turn from sin and more and more live lives that honour you as we live in a world while we wait for that last day. And Father, this evening, if we've been convicted by your word in Scripture, that things need to change for us in how we think about and engage with church, don't let us quench that work of the Spirit. Don't let us ignore it. Help us change so that more and more we might live in line with what you have said in your scriptures for our benefit, for the growth of this church and our brothers and sisters, and for your glory we pray. Amen.